y'all. I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. And this is the Murder After Dark podcast. Welcome to episode three. Come on in. Get cozy if you haven't already. Since we're still living our best lives this spooky season of October, we're covering yet another killer that inspired your favorite horror movie villains. And if you're wondering about our intro today, then you'll want to stick around for this episode and all the creepy details. Yes, because this one is a scream of a case. We're talking about the inspiration for Ghostface in Scream, Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper. Not to be confused with Ghostface Killer from Wu-Tang Clan. Right, let's set that distinction right now. I'll go ahead and tell you that there are two main takeaways from this episode. Lay them on me. One, Danny Rowling is yet another piece of shit. And two, Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with. Well, there you have it. That's the whole episode, right? Okay. Bye. We're kidding. We're kidding. Please stay. We have a case to cover. And stay with us because this case has a lot of moving parts. We're going to tell the majority of the events as they played out for law enforcement. So it does get a bit chaotic. But just imagine how it was back then. Ready? Let's do it. In August of 1990, students flocked to the University of Florida in Gainesville to settle back into college life after the summer. College is supposed to be the best years of your life. They were expecting to start their classes, reunite with friends, and maybe even enjoy a back-to-school party. They would soon all get the shock of a lifetime when five students were gruesomely murdered within the span of just four days on their unsuspecting college campus. Little did everyone know at the time, But these five murders were the culmination of years of frustration from a subpar life lived by one man. Not only that, but they were also connected to a series of armed robberies in surrounding cities, as well as an unsolved murder case in Louisiana. So how did this story unfold? And more importantly, how was this case solved? Well, to understand how we end up in Gainesville, let's go back to Shreveport, Louisiana, where a series of events were undoubtedly set in motion the day our killer was born. On May 26, 1954, Danny Rowling was born in Shreveport, Louisiana, to parents James and Claudia. James was a policeman who never wanted kids, so you can imagine his shock and disdain when Claudia ended up pregnant with Danny. James, an angry and resentful man, regularly abused his wife and new child. And that abuse worsened when Claudia got pregnant once again and had another son, Kevin, just a year later. When Danny was just a year old, his father began beating him. And what you could ever possibly want to beat a one-year-old for is beyond me, but all it took for James was Danny wasn't crawling properly. Throughout Danny's childhood, James would also refer to him as an accident that never should have happened. I know that James is not the center of our story, but I like I really just want to run him down with my car right now, even though he's long gone. I feel like we say the words piece of shit a lot, so I'm just going to call him an asshole for right now. Asshole shithead. I can get creative if you give me time. If you've not yet figured out that Sarah isn't the type of person you put on speaker, <laughs> here's your first clue. I saw something one time that said, a sentence without a cuss word just feels unseasoned. And that really resonated with me. But I try to be mindful of it. Do you know what would really resonate with me? What? Getting back to the story. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) That too. Do continue. Back to Danny Rowling being beaten and verbally abused by his father. In addition to being told he was an accident, his father would also routinely tell him that he was useless. Claudia would try to protect herself and her sons and tried to flee on several occasions, 
but would always end up back with James, which sounds consistent with a lot of abuse relationships. Mm -hmm. We all know that it's really difficult to get out of an abusive situation. We are not here to judge Claudia. She was also struggling with mental health issues and was inconsistent in her involvement in her son's lives. Danny ended up failing the third grade, which caused her to have a mental breakdown, and even at a young age, his school counselors described him as suffering from an inferiority complex with aggressive tendencies and poor impulse control. So already, we are not firing on all cylinders here in terms of raising an upstanding citizen, and I just, that really just sounds like a horrible combination of traits to have. <laughs> it's a little more severe than the, um talks too much talks on the report card that we all probably got. <laughs> Danny developed his own coping mechanisms to deal with his home life, and they weren't necessarily conventional, but then nothing about the story is conventional. He would hide in the woods near his home to escape his father and would walk around at night looking into other families' homes. He would watch them having normal dinners and think, why can't that be me? Needless to say, this is where his resentment started to grow. Danny had also picked up music as an adolescent, playing the guitar and singing hymns. As he got older, though, his coping mechanisms turned to drugs and alcohol. So not only did his coping mechanisms escalate, but so did his voyeurism. At 14, Danny was caught by the neighbors when he was looking into their teenage daughter's room. We usually talk about having the gift of hindsight, and this case is no different. As this story plays out, you're going to notice a classic serial killer pattern of behavior starting with small offenses and petty crimes that escalate into greater offenses. One night, when Danny had been drinking, he got into an altercation with his father that landed him in juvie for two weeks. It's at this point that he dropped out of high school and joined the Air Force. People were just dropping out of school left and right to join the military back mm -hmm. in the day. I grew up in an all-military family, so I don't think I'm out of line when I say that a lot of the guys that join are just a different breed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't surprise me at all to think that these soon-to-be killers would fare very well there. And don't think I'm bashing because I'm not. I'm 100% pro-military. I love it. Grew up in it. I'm just saying I can absolutely see it. And also, I can't think of anything I wanted to do less at 17 <laughs> than go to basic training. You and me both. I would not have fared well. But you know who did fare well in the military? Danny, Danny Rowling. And none of us are surprised by that because these guys, like we saw with Gary Heidnick last week, thrive in structured environments. Their previously chaotic lives finally have some rules and routine in them, and they usually do very well. Also, another side note, we talked about this last week with Gary and now again with Danny dropping out to join the military. You don't even have to drop out nowadays. There is actually a pathway where students can sign up in their junior year of high school, go to basic training over that summer, come back and finish their senior year, and then graduate high school as a soldier and go straight to AIT, which, for those of you who don't know, is advanced individual training, which is essentially just where they teach you how to do the specific job that you signed up for. So don't worry, guys. You don't have to go to them. They will come to you. They will absolutely come to you. And that is our, you know, please don't drop out of school, kids. Do not drop <laughs> out of school. Don't do that. Don't do it. Although he initially excelled, Danny's alcoholism and substance abuse worsened while he was in the military, and he was ultimately discharged in 1972. He did try what I assume to be his hardest to turn his life around, and ended up joining a church where he eventually met a woman by the name of Omatha Halko, and they married in 1974. 
I have questions. Are they about her name? Yes. I don't have answers for you, but oh. I am right there with you. Okay. Again, Danny and Omatha... But... No, Sarah. <laughs> Danny and Omatha get married, and a year later they have a daughter. And if that's where our story had ended, we wouldn't have this lovely true crime podcast for a hobby. In 1977, after three years of marriage and Danny threatening to kill his wife, the couple divorced. So, not a happy marriage then? Big no. And of course, Danny, with no concept of what he could have possibly done wrong to incite the divorce, was devastated by this rejection, and he began committing a series of petty crimes for the next several years. It was shortly after his divorce that he commits his first rape in Shreveport. Then, a stint of armed robberies landed him in jail for eight years, and he was in and out of the criminal justice systems in Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama. You know, just one way to travel. I like traveling. He also had a few botched escape attempts, one of them resulting in his right testicle being torn, and I'm specifically including that bit just because it makes me happy. Ouch. When he wasn't in jail, he was living the life of a vagrant and incapable of holding down a job. But let's fast forward to 1990. Danny is out of prison at this time, and all of the abuse and resentments towards his father, James, that has built up over the years, finally comes to a head. During another altercation, he shot his father twice. Though James does survive the shooting, it did result in him losing both an eye and an ear. That's unfortunate. Not long after, ready to get the heck out of Dodge, Danny breaks into someone's home and steals documents in order to change his identity. He then fled to Sarasota, Florida as Michael Kennedy Jr. in July of 1990. Danny didn't stay in Sarasota for long and eventually made his way towards Gainesville, although we do know after the fact that he committed another rape while he was in Sarasota. On the way to Gainesville, though, Danny stopped in Tallahassee and purchased a K-Bar knife. And K-Bar knives are very tactical-looking combat knives. Yes. They look like they could do some serious damage. I would likely injure myself just breathing near one because I've cut myself on a frickin' Amazon cardboard box. No one in their right mind would ever let you near one. And they really shouldn't, honestly. So Danny has the K-Bar and is making his way towards Gainesville, Florida. Once there, he sets up a tent camp in the woods surrounding the university. It's after this that he picks his peeping Tom habit back up and begins looking into the windows of the nearby dorm rooms. He notices two women who catch his interest named Sonia Larson and Christina Powell. Sonia and Christina were new freshmen at the university that had met over the summer and decided to become roommates in an off-campus apartment. Danny followed them home and watched them through their windows. In the early hours of August 24, 1990, Danny broke into their apartment by using a screwdriver to open their sliding glass door. We know this now, that this is the way that he entered the apartment, but originally, officers found all of the doors and deadbolts locked. He attacked Sonia in her bedroom first. She'd been stabbed several times, and a chunk of flesh from her thigh was missing. She'd also been posed in a sexual manner. Christina had also been stabbed several times, and both of her nipples had been cut off. As with Sonia, she'd been posed, and her arms were stretched upwards, and her hair fanned out around her head. Danny had actually also attempted to clean her up after her attack. Both girls had been bound with tape, Christina at the wrists, and Sonia over her mouth, but the tape had been removed after their murders. 
The girls were found two days after their murders on August 26th after Christina's parents phoned the Gainesville Police Department when they hadn't heard from her or been able to get in touch with her. Ray Barber, a Gainesville Police Department officer, went to the girls' apartment to perform a welfare check. He met the maintenance man at the apartment complex and eventually broke down the door when previous attempts to gain entry to the apartment were unsuccessful. Immediately upon entering, Officer Barber noticed that something was amiss. He quickly discovered the two girls and proceeded to call for backup. After other officers arrived on scene, it wasn't long before word got to Gainesville Police Chief Waylon Clifton. Chief Clifton, who was off-duty at the time, received a phone call from his deputy chief urging him to come see what they were dealing with at the grisly crime scene at Sonia and Christina's apartment. Once Chief Clifton arrived on scene, his instincts told him that they weren't dealing with your average homicide. In the book, A Monster of All Time, The True Story of Danny Rowling, The Gainesville Ripper by J.T. Hunter, Chief Clifton reportedly said, I realized that this was someone who was going to prey on young women, and I probably have about 50,000 of them in the jurisdiction of Gainesville in Alachua County. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. And so I did something that is probably the last thing that police chiefs or sheriffs ever do. I decided to ask for help. Well done, Police Chief Clifton. Well done. Snaps for you, claps for you, gold stars for you. He also called the commissioner of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and said, what I believe to be one of the best statements in true crime fiction or history. He said, I'm going to need some of your best agents. I've got a killer on the loose. I'm just going to say it. Police Chief Clifton was a baddie, okay? We love Police Chief Clifton. He's making up for all the shitty police work that the Philly officers did in the Gary Heidnick case we covered last week, and he is doing it early on. Mm-hmm. For sure. And it's a good thing Chief Clifton went off his gut feeling to get all hands on deck from the get-go, because the very next day, on August 27th, another body would be discovered. The third body was that of Krista Hoyt, a local sheriff's office employee. After she failed to show up for a shift at work, which is extremely unlike her, her supervisor asked a deputy to go by her apartment and check on her. What the deputy found was even more gruesome than the previous two murders. Prepare yourselves, because this one is especially rough. Krista, like Sonia and Christina, had been stabbed several times. Her body was sitting on the edge of her bed, and she had also been posed in a sexual way. Her nipples had been cut off and a patch of flesh was missing from her back. The glaring difference in this murder was that she had also been decapitated and disemboweled. Her head had been propped up on a bookcase and made to be looking at the rest of her body. After examination of the body and crime scene, it was determined that the killer had broken in through the sliding glass door and likely waited for Krista to return home as there were no signs of struggle. There was evidence that she had been bound at the wrist with duct tape, but it had been removed after her murder. The similarities in the murders and crime scenes led police to the conclusion that they had been committed by the same person, and Krista's murder was clearly an escalation. We know this is heavy, but stay with us. On August 28th, one day after the discovery of Krista and two days after Sonia and Christina, two more bodies were discovered. They were Tracy Paulus and Manuel, who went by Manny, to Boda. A friend of the two students had been asked to check on them after one of Tracy's friends was unable to reach her. 
Ironically, they had just spoken on the phone the night before in which Tracy's friend Lisa had told her to be careful as there was a killer on the loose. Tracy had told her friend she would be okay because she had Manny living with her. Tracy and Manny were high school friends, and one of the reasons Tracy wanted to be roommates with Manny, apart from friendship, was safety. Manny was six foot two and about 200 pounds. I would have felt safe too. Yeah, me too. The friend who went to check on them after speaking with Lisa was named Tommy. He and a maintenance man went to the apartment and used a master key to get in. Tommy immediately saw Tracy's body lying in the hallway between the two bedrooms with a dark colored bag beside her head. He slammed the door shut, relocked it, and called the police. When he and police came back to the apartment just five minutes later, the bag was gone. Manny's body was then found in his bedroom. Given the circumstances surrounding their murders, there were obvious similarities to the others. However, neither Tracy nor Manny's bodies had been mutilated. They had been stabbed, and like with Christina's body, there was evidence that the killer had cleaned Tracy up. This information, combined with the there-then-not-there bag, led detectives to believe that the killer had been interrupted before he had a chance to move forward with his typical M.O. Investigators also found fresh marks on the dining room door on the second floor. What's with all the cleaning and posing of the bodies up until this point? A documentary I watched on Danny Rowling said that taking a picture and carrying it around might have been too risky. And so the posing of the bodies was his way of creating a lasting mental picture. And cleaning them up was as simple as not wanting to leave any evidence, which is also likely why he took the duct tape off of them prior to leaving the scene. No fingerprints or DNA left behind on the adhesive. I absolutely understand the not carrying a picture around with you. That should be 101. Mm -hmm. But the nipples. Like, did he carry those around with him? I just, I don't think he thought that through. Questions to be answered. (laughs) That Um, may never be answered. Who knows? That's a lot of time spent with the bodies after the murders. And he was going for broke on the body count. I know he's a serial killer, but five people in four days is kind of a borderline spree killer, in my opinion. I agree, but he's most definitely a serial killer. If you're just looking at the number of victims within that time frame, like, okay, it does sound pretty spree killery. But remember, he's acting out some sort of fantasy in the way he spends time with and poses these bodies. And he's stalking these women. Manny just happened to be Tracy's roommate, so I consider him to be an outlier. Danny definitely has a type, and it's a brunette woman. And come to think of it, a lot of serial killers lean towards brunettes. How comforting for me, a brunette. I might actually go back to being a redhead at my next appointment. That's a spirit. Stack the deck in your favor. It's all about making choices that lower your risk of being the victim of a serial killer. Just like how it's safest to be their neighbor. Neighbors never get killed. I do not see myself going door to door asking if someone is a serial killer. It's probably not in my best interest. Good point. But uh, let's get off this tangent and back to Gainesville, Florida. At this point in our story, after five bodies had been discovered and the media had descended upon this story like vultures, the city of Gainesville was in complete and utter panic. College students were grouping together and students were even sleeping in larger groups and sleeping in shifts. The university canceled classes for a whole week and students were double and triple locking their doors, carrying baseball bats, anything to make themselves feel safer. Some students decided to leave campus altogether, and some of them never even came back. 
The task force assigned to this case continued to grow bigger and would ultimately include 180 law enforcement officers and cost about $6 million. They wanted the killer off the streets as soon as possible. Hard to do when there's virtually no evidence left behind. With all their time consumed with finding their perpetrator, it's no surprise that they soon zeroed in on a red herring, and I don't mean the bird. The task force, which now included FBI profiler John Douglas, our hero, His Royal Highness, had been notified of a possible suspect that had recently been kicked out of a Gatorwood apartment complex by his roommates the week before the murders. This was also the complex that Manny and Tracy had lived in. His former roommates described this new suspect as a loner with scars on his face from a previous car accident, and the reason they kicked him out was because he was acting crazy. Apparently, this person had also been known to put on military clothing and go out after dark to do what was referred to as stakeouts. I would like to know what that entailed. I would as well. Like just standing in the woods? Maybe he has a van. Maybe. Does he have a van? <laughs> That's a red flag, guys. Yeah. His girlfriend had recently broken up with him, which upset him, and she had looked a lot like the killer's other victims. This new suspect we're referring to was Edward Humphrey. Edward had been in mental institutions before and had been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. He also regularly carried around a large knife strapped to his leg. I can't say that I blame the task force for zeroing in on him, and in a panicked state, With a rush to catch a deranged killer, Edward Humphrey is ticking off a lot of boxes just based on witness accounts and a background check. It was also reported that he had a crush on Tracy. Edward Humphrey soon topped the list of suspects and was put on around-the-clock surveillance. They didn't have to wait long to talk to their prime suspect either because on August 30th, investigators learned that Humphrey had been arrested for physically assaulting his grandmother. He was placed on a $1 million bond given their suspicions of his involvement in the Gainesville murders, which is insanely high for an assault charge, and they also sent his DNA to be tested to compare with the samples found at the three crime scenes. Because even though the killer had tried to clean up, there were still traces of semen found on some of the bodies. Soon, the media got a hold of Humphrey's photo and caught on to the fact that he was a suspect, despite his grandmother saying that he would never hit her on purpose and that he had actually knocked her down and she had hit her head on the fireplace, resulting in her hospital visit, the media and the community wanted to believe that Edward was their man, despite there being other possible suspects along the investigation as well. And that's not sarcasm either, because his grandmother was like, I should have never even made the call to the police. Yeah. But can we talk about the most popular photo of Edward Humphrey? (laughs) I don't know if it's a legitimate mugshot, but it's the one that always circulates regarding this case. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. We'll try and post it on Instagram if we can. We're not trying to infringe on any copyrights or laws this early in the game. Uh, no. But if you Google him, this picture is gonna come up. He's staring at the camera with heavy eyes, which are crystal blue. He's got disheveled hair and scars from the previous accident are prominent on his face. I'm just gonna say... That younger Sarah would have been all about Edward Humphrey in a heartbeat. Oh, you absolutely would have that bad boy phase. It's the scars, the eyes, and all of it would have been right up my alley. 
You're comfortable saying this because we know he's not the killer. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would have brought him to the family Thanksgiving. And given the parents a heart attack. Megan and I are cousins, if you didn't know, which is why we're bringing up a family function. I definitely got more Joker vibes from him. Well, if we're talking Heath Ledger's Joker, of, of course I'd find him attractive. But moving on from the fact that I would have been down with Edward Humphrey. After his arrest, a police officer notices two men walking down the street not far from a bank that had recently been robbed, and it's about 1 a.m. Remember, although we're unfolding the events of this case as they happened for the most part, we know after the fact that this entire time, amidst all of these murders, Danny Rowling was committing bank robberies in nearby areas. Old boy just wouldn't quit. I mean, he committed a handful of... His More schedule than a handful. was full. Packed. Just can cancel that again. No. <laughs> so the officer calls for backup and follows these men into the woods. When he orders them to stop, one man follows orders and the other sprints away. The officer chases him until he loses sight of him. The man that had followed orders was named Tony Danzi, which is alarmingly close to Tony Danza. But not Tony Danza. But not Tony Danza. And he told officers that he had recently met the other man, known to him as Mike, at a Taco Bell. And don't we all love a little Taco Bell sometimes? I mean, for me, it's at 2 a.m. after I've been drinking. When I start demanding Taco Bell, take me home. The night is over. The night is over. Anyway. Tony had given Mike a ride across town for $10, which they were on their way to get from Mike's campsite when they were pursued. A canine attempts to track Mike's scent through the woods and comes across a tent campsite. There was some dye-stained money, a handgun, a screwdriver, jewelry, a ski mask, gloves, and a tape player. Well, that was a nice find on the canine. And for those of you who don't know, banks use exploding dye packets in the event of a robbery so that the money can't be used if it's stolen. It's not like the robber wanted to try his hand at tie-dye currency. What a letdown. But the campsite evidence wasn't initially connected to the murders, only to the local armed robberies. Within the same time frame, all of this is going on, a local law enforcement agent travels to Shreveport, Louisiana, to meet with investigators over some noted similarities between the Gainesville murders and an unsolved triple homicide in Shreveport. Although the Gainesville police thought they were similar, the Shreveport detectives weren't convinced. Does Shreveport sound familiar? It should, because it's where Danny Rowling was born. It's where he lived. For a moment, let's go back to November of 1989, almost a year previous. Three bodies were found after eight-year-old Sean Grissom didn't show up for school on November 6th, and no one could get a hold of his grandfather, William, who went by Tom. Sean's mother, frantic with worry, was able to contact a neighbor who went to check on Sean and Tom. When he walked into the house and noticed a body lying on the floor covered in blood, he ran back out and called police. The police found Tom Grissom's body in his laundry room, having been stabbed to death. Sean Grissom was also found with a single fatal stab wound. In a bedroom, Julie Grissom, Tom's daughter, was found nude and stabbed to death with bite marks on her breasts. She was posed in a suggestive manner with her arms stretched upward and her hair fanned around her head. She had been cleaned up and her clothes put in the washing machine and a wash cycle started. Julie and Sean had also been bound with duct tape that had been removed. Sounding eerily familiar to Gainesville, isn't it? A little bit. Which is why the investigators from both departments met. 
But at the time the murders happened, the Shreveport police had done all they knew to do in order to apprehend the murderer, and there just wasn't enough evidence or leads, and the case went cold. And about the same time the Shreveport murders and their possible connection was gaining momentum with press, Humphrey's DNA came back from testing. And he was not a match to the DNA found at the Gainesville murders. Despite DNA testing being in its infancy, they were able to determine the killer's blood type from the semen sample left behind. The killer's blood type was type B. Humphrey's blood type? Type A. And we would love to say that it no longer affected Humphrey's reputation from that point onward, but we know that's not the case. And the investigators, despite all evidence at that point to the contrary, still would not eliminate Humphrey as a suspect. Edward Humphrey was put through the ringer as a result of this investigation, which is really sad. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he had a history of behavior that unfortunately made him an easy target to become a suspect. As we mentioned before, Danny Rowling is still committing armed robberies throughout his murders and the course of the investigation. He hit several towns surrounding Gainesville, even narrowly escaping a run-in with law enforcement after he had stolen a car and crashed it. But after a robbery in Ocala, Florida, he's caught and arrested and admits to the robbery. He then awaits trial in prison. And wouldn't you know it, the murders in Gainesville stop. There's a huge revelation in this case, however, when the blood type of the Shreveport murders comes back as the same blood type at the Gainesville murders. And pieces of this puzzle of a case soon start falling together even more when the police in Shreveport receive a tip that ultimately leads them right to their killer. Not long after the first of the year in 1991, a tip was called into Shreveport Police Department by a Cindy Jurisich. She tells the police that she thinks she might know a drifter that committed the Shreveport murders. She and her husband had been friends with Danny Rowling when he lived in Shreveport, and at one point he would come, um, come over almost every night for dinner. According to Cindy, one night her husband came to her and said that Danny had to go. When she asked why, he said, because he likes to stick knives in people. That's enough of a reason for me, yeah. Cindy didn't know what to make of this and didn't want to believe that Danny could have had anything to do with the Shreveport murders, but after this encounter, it ate away at her for months and she finally decided to notify police. And I would like to be a fly on the wall <laughs> of the conversation between Danny and her husband because right. I just want to know how that came up and how it unrolled. Right. I think, I think he had said something about like, he was a bad person, and her husband asked why. So I guess it was, oh, I'm a bad person. Oh, why, Danny? Because I like to stick knives in people. And oh, he's like, okay. oh, well, it's been a nice it's visit. Perhaps you should go. I will call you about tomorrow. Um, but if you'll just see yourself. We're, we're busy for out. the next several years. We're going out of town. Best of luck in your future endeavors. Warmest regards. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Since Danny was locked up at the time, it made it fairly easy for law enforcement to locate him once they determined he needed to be looked into for the Shreveport murders. Also, investigators were slowly making the connection that he was likely responsible for all of the recent armed robberies in the area and not just one standalone robbery in Ocala. They then returned to the evidence locker to get the items they had found at the campsite not that long ago and realized that the tape recorder they had found had never been listened to. 
And Don Maines from the Gainesville Police Department openly says that this was a miss on their part. So good for them for being accountable. But what's on that tape is pure gold in terms of evidence. The tape was of a man talking and singing. And one of the song lyrics was, Mystery writer, what's your name? You're a killer, a drifter, gone insane. If this sounds familiar, it's because it's the song we included at the beginning when our episode started. The one that made Sarah want to crawl out of her skin. It makes me so uncomfortable. It's so freaking creepy. The man also talked about his life and what led him down the wrong path. But at one point in the recording, the man says his name, Danny Harold Rowling. I absolutely love when killers are freaking idiots. Their egos are so enormous that they think they're invincible. And then, boom, they give their whole name and a life story on a doggone tape recording. It is the favorite Greek tragedy trait, hubris. At this point, investigators have all they need to charge Danny Rowling with murder, especially when results came back from DNA testing that his blood type was a match. But before he could stand trial for the Gainesville murders, he had to stand trial for several felony bank robbery charges for which he was convicted and sent to Florida State Prison. While he was in prison, he met another inmate by the name of Bobby Lewis. Lewis claimed that Danny had told him several details about the murders and he wanted to confess. But just like a narcissistic murderer, Danny would only talk through Bobby Lewis. This led to a five-page letter describing the events in detail, and many of them only details the killer would know. When they question him, of course, using Lewis as his speaker, he did affirm that his confession was legitimate. And because it's impossible for serial killers to be accountable for what they did, during trial, Danny played the multiple personalities card. He called them Enad and Gemini. And Enad, according to Danny, was bad but not evil. Gemini, however, was behind the deadly behavior. And I'm laughing because I'm going to point out that the spelling of Enad is Danny spelled backward. And Gemini is his astrological sign. So, the, my God, the man was not a quick thinker. Those multiple personalities were not corroborated by a forensic psychologist either. Despite his admission of guilt in the Gainesville murders, he would not admit to the Shreveport murders during questioning. He did, however, make it abundantly clear that Ed Humphrey had nothing to do with the murders. So thankfully, Ed was finally released 10 months after his arrest for the assault on his grandmother. On February 15, 1994, Danny went to trial for the Gainesville murders. And we're not going to drag out the trial because, honestly, we're tired of talking about Danny mm -hmm. and... Because the most important piece of the trial was when he was found guilty and sentenced to execution. Manny Taboda's brother, Mario, stood up in court following the sentencing and shouted, You're going down in five. Do you understand that? In less than five years, we have the last say. We will prevail. Our children's names will be remembered over him. I love Mario Taboda for that. Danny Rowling was executed by lethal injection on October 25th, 2006 but not before his last meal of lobster tail with drawn butter, butterfly shrimp with cocktail sauce, a baked potato with sour cream and butter, strawberry cheesecake, and sweet tea. And I sincerely hope that his lobster was rubbery, his shrimp not deveined, and his tea minimally sweetened at the absolute 
very least. I'm not gonna lie though, that sounds great. It does, I mean, it is, it's gonna be good. It's a good meal, I'm sure. He also broke out into song on his deathbed and sang a hymn, rambling on for five verses, which has got to be annoying as hell. But his microphone was cut off mid-song, and that is deeply satisfying to me. I love that. I know. He spoke to a pastor the night before his execution and handed him a note that contained a confession to the Shreveport homicides. Finally, the tragic story of the Gainesville murders and the unsolved Shreveport murders had come to a conclusion, but not for the families. They will forever have to recall the horrors of that year and what followed. In Gainesville, there's a wall with a memorial for the Gainesville students with their names and one simple command. Remember, and we will. Something that we would like to do at the end of our episodes, instead of concluding the story with the killer, is to talk about those whose lives were senselessly taken away. We may not always have the information to do that every episode, but today we do. And while we can't talk about these cases without talking about what happened to the victims or the stories of their killers, we can remember them as their friends and families do. Their stories will always be intertwined with tragedy, but let's end by focusing on the people that they were. Tom Grissom was just 55 years old when he was murdered. He was divorced and worked as a supervisor at AT AT&T. He had been battling throat cancer for years, but he had recently been doing better and was looking forward to retirement soon and spending more time with his family. His friends and family described him as polite, friendly, and respectable. His daughter, Julie, was 24 years old and had been studying marketing at the Shreveport campus of Louisiana State University after transferring from the Baton Rouge campus and had been working part-time at a Dillard's. She was on the verge of graduation. Sean Grissom, Tom's grandson and Julie's nephew, was eight years old and in third grade. He had been visiting his grandfather for the weekend as part of his recent birthday celebrations and was supposed to return home Monday morning, but he wouldn't get to. Sonia Larson was 18 years old and starting her freshman year at Florida State University. Her best friend from high school stated that Sonia was so excited to be moving into the next phase of her life and that everyone that knew her claimed that she was a shy but super sweet girl who loved working with children. In high school, she had been a member of the Students Against Drunk Driving and a manager for the girls' varsity basketball team. Christina Powell was just 17 years old, and she had met Sonia during the summer, and they immediately became friends and decided to be roommates and get an apartment together. She'd been editor of her high school yearbook and worked on the literary magazine. She also loved participating in her church youth group. And it was Sonia's mother who had become concerned when she'd not heard from her daughter and reached out to Christina's family, who lived much closer, to check in on them. The pals arrived at the complex, and when no one answered the door, they asked maintenance for help. They were right there before police officers when their daughter's body was discovered and witnessed the horrible scene. Krista Hoyt was 17 years old and had just graduated from high school and was attending Santa Fe College in Gainesville, where she was a chemistry honors student and had plans on transferring to the University of Florida. She was an aspiring police officer who had been working part-time at a local sheriff's office while going to school. The officer dispatched to check on Krista was a friend from the office and stated that she would have to carry the pictures of Krista's body in her mind for the rest of her life. Tracy Paulus was 23 years old. She had graduated with honors from high school and had been a member of the National Honor Society and Homecoming Queen. She also played soccer and softball. 
Tracy had worked as a part-time paralegal for two years after high school while trying to save money to go back to school. At the time of her death, she was a senior at the University of Florida applying to law schools. She was living with Manuel, also known as Manny Taboda. They had been high school best friends in Miami. He'd been the president of the Thespians Club and played football. He was attending Santa Fe College with plans of transferring to the University of Florida to study to be an architect. For the families of these victims, they will never forget what happened to them, but they do have their own ways of remembering their loved ones. Sonia's parents have set up a fund in her name for abused and neglected children. Her mother, Ada, states that she wears her daughter's class ring from Ely High, and whenever she's in Florida, she stops in Gainesville and visits the memorial wall. Tracy's sister, Lori, keeps some of her sister's jewelry in a box, including Tracy's favorite necklace. She also stated that her oldest daughter wears her University of Florida sweatsuit for soccer all the time. Sonia's brother, Jim, keeps artwork from his sister on his walls for his children to see. And sadly, just seven years later, his wife was murdered while on her lunch break. He makes it through with his sense of humor, where he wondered if Rowling and his wife's killers were near each other on death row, asking, maybe they had a larson wing. Maybe they got together and asked, how's Jim doing? And just like Jim, you'll notice that we also use humor as a coping mechanism, given that these stories can be so dark. Speaking of these stories being dark, this one is particularly dark. And we gave you the high notes, the main points. So if you want to do a further deep dive into this case and into the depravity that was Danny Rowling, you can check out the show notes for the sources that we used. I particularly recommend the book by J.T. Hunter, as it involves a plethora of information. But we also want to be mindful of your time, which we are very happy you're spending with us. And that concludes today's episode of Murder After Dark. Again, this was some heavy stuff, so go treat yourself. Thank y'all so much for listening, and don't forget to give us a like, a follow, a rate, a review, and subscribe to our podcasts and social medias. All your links are in the show notes. Tune in next week as we talk about yet another killer that inspired your favorite horror movie villains. Until then, remember to lock your doors. And as always, we hope you loved it, we hope you learned something, and we hope you keep coming back for more. Bye! Bye.